Morning, church family. If you are joining us online as you're away celebrating the family, we're glad you're able to be with us on YouTube this morning. We have some of our elementary friends, elementary school friends in service with us today. Welcome to you all. Hope yesterday was magical for you. And if anyone here is feeling that post-Christmas letdown, um, remember it's only 364 days till next Christmas. So that would be an epic paper chain. Today is a milestone in the life of North Suburban Church. This may be the last sermon you ever hear preached from this pulpit using the English Standard Version of the Bible. Uh, with the turn of the new year, you may have seen in the recent emails and on YouTube that we will be transitioning to a 2017 translation called the Christian Standard Bible, CSB. Um, we're pretty excited about that, actually. Um, I think we've got a, just an image up here. Uh, oh, there it is, yeah. Uh, some of the different CSB offerings on our website and on our YouTube channel. You can read up about why we're making the switch. But if you are wanting to get familiar with the CSB, we have a great way to do that. On Saturday of this week, which is New Year's Day, many of us will be starting a one-year Bible reading plan, and we'll be doing it in the CSB to provide us with a fresh hearing of God's Word that's different from how some of us have read the Bible over the years. Um, our church uses the Version Bible app, uh, which is free, and it's cool because on that app we can read and then comment each day, and then you can see the comments from others at North Sub who are reflecting on the same passages that you're reading. Several of us did that this past year. It just takes 12 to 15 minutes a day to read through the whole Bible in a year. So if you want to join with us in that, click the link that's in this past Thursday's highlights email or in tomorrow's Monday update email, and uh, that'll make you automatically join our reading group. It's good to be together this morning. Uh, there could be questions that you have during today's sermon. If you do, I want to invite you to just text those in to that number, 224-300-0240, and uh, I'll take some time to respond to uh, some of those at the end of today's service. Let's pray. Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. We're all counting we count likes and follows on social media. We count raises and holiday bonuses. We count test grades and GPA. We count our net worth, retirement portfolios. We've all got numbers that we're paying attention to, metrics that we care about because they tell us something that we want to know. And that counting, it doesn't just happen out there, outside the doors of the church. Churches do it too. The other day, Sarah said to me, Tim, check out this Instagram video. It was a well-known pastor in Arizona promoting his church's December giving campaign. And he starts out the, the video saying, In 2021, when almost no churches grew, our church grew like crazy. We've got more people now than we've ever had, more giving now than we've ever had, all during a year when very few other churches were able to pull that off. For most of us, that sort of counting, or at least that sort of framing of it, falls into the category of, okay, that's gross, right? 
but here's the thing. We take an attendance count here every week, right? You've seen our year-to-date budget updates we publish each month. We count, just like everybody else does. But when, when we see something like that cringy giving video campaign, campaign video, it can make us ask, should we count? If so, what should we count? How should we count? The end of a year might be one of the most important times to ask a question like that, because at the end of a year, we tend to do a disproportionate amount of counting. Right? What milestones did I achieve in 2021? What measurables do I hope to attain in 2022? It's for that reason that I want to end 2021 with a reflection on counting. Second Samuel 24, if you haven't turned there already, uh, you're going to want to be there with us. King David takes a count in this chapter in a way that is sinful. There should be a Bible in the chair backs in front of you if you don't have one with you. Would you turn there with me? This is a transition sermon as we pivot from our fall series on discipleship toward our new sermon series will have a lot to do with evaluation, assessment, diagnosis of our discipleship. In this series, we'll be asking questions like, what is God's assessment of us? And therefore, what should be our assessment of ourselves? But wrapped up in those assessment questions are some other questions like, does God even count the things that we count? Does he measure the way that we measure? By exploring this passage in 2 Samuel 24, in which King David's counting is regarded as a great sin, my hope is that we will gain some clarity on what sort of counting is honoring to the Lord uh, and in contrast to what sort of counting is dishonoring to the Lord. So a little background on 2 Samuel 24, as a few of you are still uh, just finding your way there. This is the last chapter of the two-part book of Samuel. The book starts in 1 Samuel 1 with Hannah's prayer of utter dependence on God. Then it runs through the reigns of Saul and David. And then these final four chapters of 2 Samuel are like a mini appendix at the end of the story. They're not necessarily in chronological order with what's come before. This was at some point during David's reign. We're not quite sure exactly when. Uh, But today we'll look at that very last chapter, 2 Samuel 24. This chapter really tells a three-part story. But before that, there's a setup in verse 1 that requires a moment of our attention. So we'll walk our way through the story just like this, the unseen backstory in verse 1, and then sin, punishment, resolution. Sin, punishment, resolution. Follow along with me. We'll read as we go. First, the unseen backstory in 2 Samuel 24, verse 1. It says, Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go. Number Israel and Judah. Quite a number of question marks here. Uh, One, we're not told when this takes place. It starts with again, but when was the last time that that's referring back to? Second, we're not told what Israel did that kindled the Lord's anger against them. And third, we're not told how God incited David against them. We're just told that God did, in fact, incite David against Israel such that David wants to take account of the people of Israel and Judah. So right off the bat, we've got a big problem, I think. For for me, this is a big problem. Uh, Namely, in the verses that follow, we're going to see that God considers David's counting to be sinful. So why is God inciting David to do something that God himself considers sinful? 
to complicate matters further, this part of the exact same story is told differently in 1 Chronicles 21. That chapter is the same story. The chronicler almost certainly has the book of Samuel in front of him as he writes. There's so much wording that's exactly the same. Yet, when the chronicler tells this prelude part of the story in verse 1, instead of saying that God incited David, here's what he says. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. First Chronicles says it was Satan. Second Samuel says it was the Lord. What's going on? Plenty of commentators give up at this point, say it's a hopeless contradiction. What's the deal? We can't spend too long on this, but actually this is one of several times in Scripture. Job's story, if you remember Job's story being one of the most notable, where we see the all-sovereign God being so in control, so undeterred by opposition to his rule, that he actually is able to use Satan as a tool to carry out his desires. Our God is actually able to use Satan as a tool to carry out his own ultimate desires. Now, is that how Satan intends to be used? No, right? Satan's trying to oppose God in every way he can, but God is in so much of a different league than Satan that he can turn even the work of Satan and work it for his ultimate plan. And so theologians in our church's tradition would say, did David commit the sinful act recorded in this chapter? Yes, and he's responsible for it. Did Satan incite him to do it? Yes. Did God incite him, David, to do it? Also yes, by permitting Satan to incite David, there's a sense in which it can be truly said that God is the ultimate, though not direct, inciter of David. And it's that ultimate sense that this, the writer of Second Samuel has in view when he attributes this to the Lord. Much more I'd like to say on this. But unless somebody texts in a question that I can answer at the end of service, I'll save further clarification for tomorrow's Monday update. I'll just add some more stuff in there that I had to cut. But in the end, we have... Not some sort of, hey, this is David 60% responsible, Satan 20% responsible, God 20% responsible situations. Not, not how the Bible views it. This is a situation in which David is 100% engaged in and responsible for his sin. Satan is 100% engaged in and responsible for inciting David. And God is presented yet as 100% the one directing all the action. In other words, all other actors in this story and beyond act under the umbrella of the sovereignty of God who, important clarification, is working this whole thing out for the ultimate good of David and of Israel. There's maybe something in that for us at the outset, I think. Uh, especially if you're experiencing your own testing as 2021 is coming to a close. Remember, David doesn't have verse 1 in front of him. He doesn't know what's going on behind the scenes in the unseen spiritual realm. So just as David doesn't know about the work of God or the work of Satan behind the scenes here, there may be more going on behind the scenes in your life than you're aware of in the spiritual realm, again. While we may not know all the conversations and all the permissions being given in the spiritual realm that are affecting our circumstances right now, we can know this. The God who allows us to be tested does so not because he just likes to mess with us, 
but because he has good purposes for us in our testing. Let's continue and see those good purposes play out in this chapter today, 2 Samuel 24. Verses 2 through 9 lay out the sin that David committed. Follow along as I read. So the king, that's David, said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does the lord my king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan and began from Aror and from the city that is in the middle of the valley toward Gad and on to Jazer. Then they came to Gilead and to Kadesh in the land of the Hittites, and they came to Dan. And from Dan they went around to Sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and Canaanites. And they went out to the Negev of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. So Joab, who's not normally the most principled dude, objects to David's order to take a census. And it seems like it's not just Joab who objects either. Verse 4 indicates that the commanders of the army also thought this was a bad idea. Do you notice that? But what's wrong with taking a census, right? According to verse 9, he's specifically counting the fighting men. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with measuring the size of your military potential? I mean, here in America, didn't we all just participate in a census last year? Don't we all have to register at 18 for selective service so the government knows just how many of us are available if they ever need to call for a draft? This seems like the most normal thing in the world. And actually, the Hebrew Bible itself records several censuses without any suggestion that any of them were sinful before this. We'll look at Exodus 30 in a minute. God even gives instructions there for how to take a census. And that's why I think, and some commentators do disagree with this, but I think the problem can't be the census itself, but rather David's motive behind the census. Here's how a pastor in Minnesota named Scott Hubbard puts it, and I think he's right on. The issue is whether we count from a place of security in our God or in order to find some security apart from him. I'm going to leave that up there for a second because there's one thing that you take away today from this whole idea of counting, measuring. I think it's this. The issue is whether we count from a place of security in our God or in order to find some security apart from him. David's sin is that he counts not from a place of security in God, but rather in an attempt to find security apart from God. And there are at least two ways I think that that, security manif- that insecurity manifests itself in these verses. First, David doubts God's promises. David doubts God's promises. God had promised David in 2 Samuel 7. We just talked about it last week, uh, that, that chapter. I will give you rest from all your enemies. That's one of God's promises to David there. David here effectively says, okay, Yes, Joab, God did promise that. But just in case, shouldn't we cover all our bases by mobilizing a maximally sized army? 
In other words, David starts to trust less in God to protect the nation and to trust more in the strength of the military that he has at his side. And it's enlightening, I think, that this shift happens, as it so often does for you and me, I think, during what seems to be a time of success. Isn't that when we so often shift our trust away from God? I think Joab asked him in verse 3, David, why do you delight in this thing? Because he can see that David's delight has shifted from delight in God's promises to delight in the massive Department of Defense that he has at his disposal. Second way David's insecurity manifests itself is that David pushes God to the periphery of the story. David pushes God to the periphery of the story. David now becomes the main character and the hero of his own narrative. He becomes the master and lord of Israel in his own mind, even though Israel's kings were supposed to be mediatorial kings. They were supposed to be under rulers who reigned not on their own authority, but by carrying out God's divine leadership in righteousness and justice. Yet David's me focus is all over this passage. No consulting the Lord first. Steamrolling advisors. And check this out. God had actually foreseen the dangers of conducting a census if he didn't remain at the center of the story. So he actually commanded way back in Exodus 30 that when a census was taken, a ransom had to be paid by each person counted to redeem their life. To say, in other words, my life is not mine. This life being counted today is not mine, but God's. They had to pay a ransom for that purpose. And the wording of that command is actually haunting when you know how 2 Samuel 24 ends up. Here's what it says. Each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. Yet, here in 2 Samuel 24, do we have any indication of a ransom that's paid? to God, to acknowledge his possession of the nation? Any mention of God at all in verses 2 through 9? No. Instead, we have number the people, David says, that I may know the number of the people. That's his reason given. I want to know. This is all about David. He's acting as though these people belong to him. But Let's not be too hard on David without looking in the mirror, right? Do we ever doubt God's promises? Are we never guilty of pushing him to the periphery? Do we ever then count, so to speak, measure, in a desperate search for security apart from him? I'll speak personally about it for a moment. As I was reflecting this week, if, if I were to start counting from a place of security instead of insecurity, I'd maybe still notice, for example, how often my kids acted out in public. That would still be a count that maybe would still happen in my mind. But their misbehavior count, so to speak, wouldn't fundamentally shake me or stress me out if I were deeply secure in the truth that my kids' behavior can't jeopardize God's promises. Their misbehavior count wouldn't mean anything for my identity or security, ultimately, if I deeply believe that they belong to God and I'm just a steward to whom they've been temporarily entrusted. And here at church, if I were to start counting, so to speak, from a place of security instead of insecurity, I'd, I'd maybe still notice the Sunday morning attendance count most weeks. 
but the attendance count wouldn't have done what it honestly did to me this past couple months. And I started asking all sorts of questions about myself and my worth because the church didn't grow as much as I hoped it would this fall. Just to be honest. And let me be clear. If you would have asked me in September, October, where does your worth come from? I would have answered that question with tremendous theological accuracy at any moment, right? But simultaneously, I realized a few weeks back that on a subconscious level, I'm sometimes like, my worth's in God. But if I could just look out one day on a North Sub congregation of 500, 700 people, that would just be such a nice backup confirmation of my worth. I'm no different from David. I could have given, I, I mean, I could give 10 more examples of things I count in a search for security, right? My weight gain or weight loss, number of articles I've published, my performance evaluations, net worth. I'm all too prone to count all of those metrics with the wrong motives. So how does God respond to such sin? Right? Remember the plague that Exodus 30 said would come if there was a census that didn't acknowledge the Lord? Let's take a look. The punishment, verses 10 through 17. Follow along with me. But David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say to David, Thus says the Lord, Three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, Shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, It is enough. Now stay your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Arowana, the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned, and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. This section that we just read is bookended by David confessing and repenting. Notice that, verses 10 and 17. And of course, that's what makes David a great man, precisely, in Scripture. A man after God's own heart, he's called, right? It's not that he sins less than other people or even other kings, but rather that when he realizes that he has sinned, he repents. Nobody tells him in verse 10. He just is struck in his heart. But here, despite David's heartfelt contrition, God doesn't completely remove the consequences of his sin. He gives David three choices, verse 13. All three are severe. 
Three years famine, three months of military invasion, three days pestilence. Probably all three would be expected to result in roughly the same loss of life. In other words, whatever David chooses, thousands and thousands will die. Now for me, as a reader of this text again, this response from God immediately raises two major difficulties. One, why does this sin warrant such an extreme punishment? Right, like, like, okay, David took a misguided census. He got pragmatic for a second. He forgot his place. It seems like this could have been like, okay, David, you're going to have the most uncomfortable stomach virus of your life, and it's going to last a full two weeks. And that seems kind of fair to me based on what happened here. My second question is related. Why would the people suffer for David's sin? Why wouldn't an individual consequence be more fair for an individual sin? There are two features of the story that are easy to miss on first reading of this passage. One is the representative nature of David's role. Because of the way God had set up the kingship in Israel, the king's fate is Israel's fate. If the king does good, everyone gets blessed. If the king does bad, everyone suffers. And as much as we might say at verse 13, for example, ah, I don't like that, the people suffering for the sin of the king. By verse 17, we're reminded why we're thankful for that. Because when David acts obediently, the plague is checked not just for David, but for all of the people. In other words, you can't have the representation just work one way. Blessing the people for the king's faithfulness without it also working the other way, causing the people to suffer for the king's unfaithfulness. We'll just file that away for later. The second feature of the story we can't overlook is Israel's guilt. That they're guilty too. Remember back in verse 1? That none of this would have happened if God's anger wasn't already kindled against Israel? For something else unstated in the text, it's because he was angry at Israel already that he incited or allowed Satan to incite David to conduct this census, right? In other words, this isn't exactly the story of just a poor, innocent people suffering for the sin of someone else. It's, it's more complicated than that. So difficulties aside, David's got these three options, famine, invasion, pestilence. What's the best choice of the three? David isn't sure. He doesn't actually make the choice in the end, perhaps because the weight of it is just too much to bear. But he does know one thing. He's going to eliminate option two because that's the one that would leave him and his people in the hands of human enemies. Do you see that in verse 14? David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of men. So with option two eliminated, God seemingly is the one who picks pestilence over famine. And as the pestilence is sweeping over the land, we see just how right David was about God. We're not sure how many days into it this happens, but at some point before the fullness of the sentence is carried out, right before the angel who's carrying out the punishment is about to send the punishment, the pestilence on Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord says, no, 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 cut it off, cut it short. That's enough. You see that in verse 16? When the angel stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it's enough. Now stay your hand. David is shown here in verse 16 to be spot on about the God that he worshipped. God is exactly who David thought he was. 
But lest we think of David as the hero for his pleading on the people's behalf as though it's David's begging that somehow guilts God into being gracious, that's not how the author structures the narrative, is it? Check it out. The, verses, the events of verses 16 and 17 seem to be taking place pretty much simultaneously, yet the author puts verse 16, God's decision to relent, first before David's plea in verse 17. Do you notice that? In other words, the author seems to want us to know the reason this is stopping is because God is gracious, period. He doesn't need anyone to twist his arm to be gracious. He is gracious in his character. Still, David's plea, though, in in verse 17 is rich. It's worth us looking at again. David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Not often do we see in Scripture someone pleading to take God's wrath on himself so that the people can go free. I'll say that again in case you missed it. Not often in Scripture, right, do we see someone pleading to take God's wrath on himself so that the people can go free. That's just the thing, right? The main role that David plays in the big story of everything is to be a forerunner of Christ. It's here in 2 Samuel, he's here first and, first and foremost in 2 Samuel to serve as a pointer to his great, 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 great grandson, the one whose birth we celebrated yesterday, the one who will be the perfect king that David couldn't be and who will go through with taking God's wrath on himself so that we might escape it. This is when we become so grateful for the representative nature of God's covenants with human beings, prefigured in David and now enjoyed by us in Christ, the representative structure that allowed Israel to suffer for David's sin is the same representative structure that allows Jesus to die in our place and us to benefit from his righteousness. In other words, it turns out that David spoke better than he knew when he prayed, let your hand be against me and against my father's house. Because a member of his father's house would one day be precisely the one who would come and take the wrath, the full wrath of God, including the wrath that was supposed to fall on Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 24 before God stopped it, and to take the wrath that was supposed to fall on you and me. There are so many moments in the Old Testament, just like the one recorded in this chapter, in verse 16 specifically, when God lets the people off without the full punishment being served. But those actually appear to be a plot hole in the Bible, opening God up to the charge of injustice because God shouldn't be able to just truncate our punishment, not if he's just. That's unjust, unjust to do that. The full sentence has to be paid if he's just until we realize, oh, the sentence actually was paid in full. It's just that God paid it himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Friends, it's not a casual thing when you and I seek security apart from God and our counting. Part of what this passage is intended to do, I think, is to help us to realize how serious our sin is when we push God to the periphery or when we doubt his promises. 
praise God that we have a true and better David who did take our punishment on his behalf. Finally, and most briefly, this resolution in verses 18 to 25. Follow along with me as I read. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arowana the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Arowana looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arowana went out and paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Arowana said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be averted from the people. Then Arowana said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, and the threshing sledges, and the yokes of oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Arowana gives to the king. And Arowana said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Arowana, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. There's plenty in these closing verses that could be fruitfully explored, but for the sake of time, I just want to focus on one aspect of what's here. If David's apology has been accepted and the pestilence has been halted, why is this altar needed? One piece of the answer seems to be that this is one of many instances in Scripture in which there's a tight connection between repentance and worship. That's why our worship services so often include both corporate confessions, like the one Maggie gave to us earlier, and opportunities to individually repent as well. But as it relates to the biblical storyline, this altar building carries even greater significance because Chronicles actually tells us that the site of this altar, this threshing floor, will be the site of the future temple. Even though God doesn't permit David to build the temple himself, David is allowed here to buy the land on which his son Solomon will build it. The sacrifices offered here in verse 25 prefigure what will be done here on this site day after day for generations to come as people will come here to this very place to seek atonement for their sins. And after centuries of animal sacrifices like those in verse 25, it eventually becomes seared into Israel's corporate consciousness that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Yet, the sin problem of the nation remained. That's because, in the end, the blood of animals was a type of what was to come. It's only the blood of Jesus. That once and for all final sacrifice that is our hope to be forgiven and made right with God. And that blood of Jesus is the source of our security. Whatever tomorrow holds, the cross reminds us not only that there's a God who's big enough to save us, but also that he loved us enough to pay the ultimate price, to secure our future, not because of anything lovely about ourselves, but rather because of his undeserved, unexplainable mercy. So our big idea today is this. Having found security in our all-powerful, merciful God, may we not seek security apart from him in our counting and what we count and what we measure.
Having found security in our all-powerful, merciful God, may we not seek security apart from him in our counting. David knew where his security was supposed to be found. Yet, like all of us do from time to time, success caused him to drift. What if we as a church family committed in the new year to help each other avoid that same drift? As individuals, we're putting the final touches on 2021 and getting ready to kick off 2022. My prayer is that this scripture that we read today impacts both our evaluation of the year that just ended, has just ended, and our hopes for the year to come. Like maybe, by God's grace, we can look back this week on 2021 from a place of security based on the cross work of Christ. And so when our tally of achievements from 2021 comes up short of what we hoped, we aren't fundamentally shaken by that because our identity isn't in whether we hit our goals for this year. And maybe by God's grace, we look ahead now to 2022 with different metrics in mind, or at least ready to count the same metrics from a different posture. We might still set a fitness goal at the gym or a sales goal at work or an academic goal at school. But maybe now we say, my sense of worth, my sense of value, my sense of security is not going to rise and fall with that goal like it has in past years because I am going to claim and to reclaim my security in him alone. And I'd love for us to do that same work corporately as a church as well. Whether people come, whether people go. Whether giving strong, whether giving dips. It all matters, but may it not matter ultimately. May North Suburban Church be a congregation so secure in Christ that we don't look to those metrics to tell us anything fundamental about ourselves because all that's fundamental about ourselves has already been told to us at the cross. And from that place of security, may we find a way to measure the things that matter most to our God. One final word I want to close on just to make sure it didn't get missed. If we realize at the close of 2021 that we've sinned and our motives are counting, that we've allowed those metrics to become the source of our security or insecurity. There's good news in this text. I hope you didn't miss it. The good news is that at the end of this year, we can throw ourselves upon Jesus, our representative, claiming for ourselves that good news that a member of David's household, the good shepherd, did come to take the punishment deserved by his fragile, broken, and insecure sheep. Let's pray. Lord, may that be true of us. That we're so secure in you that we can't be shaken when numbers and measures and metrics don't match up to what we'd hoped that they would be. May we be so rooted and grounded in you, deriving all of our worth and value from what you say we are and who you say we are, that we can't be broken by the tallies that this world considers so important. We praise you and thank you, Lord, that uh, such a reality is not outside of our grasp, but that in you, we can have that security. We can experience that for moments and even consistently in such a way that we can be 
uh, unmoved when the world around us goes mad. In Jesus' name, amen.